now invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, in this passage, Jesus is once again telling us another parable as he did last week. And again, like last week's parable, Luke sets us up for this parable in a very wonderful way. You'll notice that he tells us both who this parable is for and what it is about. So if you look with me at verse 9, we read, And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Meaning, this parable is a parable for the self-righteous. The telltale sign that we are self-righteous is when we treat others with contempt. Uh, one way to think about it is that the bad fruit of contempt comes from the root of self-righteousness. Now, in verse 9, Jesus says that he told this parable to some, to some who are self-righteous. Now, in the historical context, who, who is included in the sum? Well, you might be thinking of the Pharisees, and that'd be a good guess. In this parable, this self-righteous man is a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were those who had a very clean outside of the cup, but inside, they were filthy with the sin of self-righteousness. But it also includes the disciples. The disciples aren't off the hook. Because this second passage that we read, verses 15 through 17, is this narrative about how 
uh, parents, adults were bringing infants, infants to Jesus so that he could bless them. And the disciples, upon seeing this, rebuke these parents and say, what are you doing wasting Jesus' time? He has much greater things to do than to bless children. And so just as the Pharisee in the parable is guilty of self-righteous contempt by looking at this tax collector as someone who is unworthy of God, of the people of God, in a similar way, the disciples are guilty of self-righteous contempt as they think children and infants are unworthy of Jesus' blessing. We're going to press into that a bit more next week and see the implications that has for how we view children as members of God's covenant and people, even today. So, the sum of verse 9 include the Pharisees, includes the disciples, but what about you and I? Are we implicated in this sum of verse 9? Well, in verse 9, Jesus uses this word contempt, or Luke, I should say, uses the word contempt, and this same word is used in Romans 14, which is Paul's discussion on Christian freedom. And in Romans 14, Paul is addressing this issue that plagued the early church. Now, in the early church, there, of course, was this massive in, in, uh, inclusion of Gentiles into the, uh, the community of God. And these Gentiles were former pagans. They participated in pagan festivals and worship services, and they were converted, and they, they joined the true church of Jesus Christ, and they lived in a pagan society. Lived in Rome, of all places. And one of the main issues that they wrestled with is, how do we think about meat that's sold in the marketplace that had been previously used in pagan rituals and festivals? Many of these Gentile Christians didn't feel comfortable eating this meat. Many of these Gentile Christians thought they were uh, somehow complicit in paganism if they ate this meat. And so Paul's addressing this issue. And his point in verse 3 is that there will be some who recognize that the gospel brings Christian freedom. Meaning, objectively speaking, one's conscience need not be bound when it comes to meat sacrifice to idols. However, there will be those who have weak consciences and they will want to uh, refrain from meat and only eat vegetables. So, meaning there's going to be Christians who come down on different sides of this issue of meat sacrifice to idols. And this is Paul's point in verse 3 of Romans 14. He says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, this word despise is the same word that's used in Luke 18.9. It's contempt. Paul's main point in Romans 14 is that when your brother or sister comes down on the other side of the fence on a Christian freedom issue, you are to love them and not disdain them. You are to love them and not treat them with contempt. These issues, these Christian freedom issues, are some of the main issues that reveal our self-righteousness. Now, we don't struggle with meat sacrifice to idols, but there's a whole plethora of Christian freedom issues, things that Scripture does not speak explicitly to, that Christians divide over. Christians get in very heated arguments about, and Christians are very unloving toward one another about. Engagement in culture, political issues, education, etc., etc. We, we could list off a whole host of things that fall within the category of Christian freedom. 
And so we too are implicated in, in this parable. We too are the self-righteous, along with the Pharisees and the disciples. And thus we too are in need to hear what Jesus has to say this morning. And so what I'd like us to do is just to briefly consider both of these prayers. The prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the tax collector. So this parable begins with this note about how these two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector, go up to the temple to pray. Now the temple at that time in Judaism was the place of prayer. And these two men likely were in the outer courts of the temple. And in the Jewish mind, the temple represented the cosmos. So the very holy of holies, that represented God's invisible throne room in the, in the heavens. The holy place was the visible heavens. The outer courts represented the habitable earth where you and I dwell. But it also represented the, the, the distinction, the division in society between the clean and the unclean, between the holy and the unholy, between the pure and the impure. And so as the Pharisee and the tax collector go to the temple, the Pharisee very much sees himself as the pure, clean, and holy follower of Yahweh. And this tax collector is the unclean, the unholy, the impure, the one who's unworthy of God. And this Pharisee is a man of prayer. Obviously, he's praying in this parable. Well, we should see him as someone who, who most likely habitually prayed. This was a practice in his life. He was a very religiously devout individual. In this prayer, uh, the Pharisee is presented as a very externally righteous person. Uh, we are told that he is one who fasts twice a week. Now here we see that he is fasting more than what was required in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law only required Jews to fast one day of, week, one day of the week, and that day was on the Day of Atonement. So this Pharisee was a pious Jew, fasting twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. But we also learn that he tithed everything that he had. Now, some commentators think that what's being referenced here is another way in which the Pharisee is going beyond what the law actually called Israel to do. Some, com some commentators think that what this Pharisee was doing was he was tithing the food that he bought at the marketplace, which was already tithed by the grower. And this usually was uh, something that people thought didn't need to be tithed. But the Pharisee did it anyways. So he was a faithful tither. And we also see that he was externally moral. He was not complicit in these gross public sins. He did not commit extortion. He did not commit gross acts of sexual immorality or, or deeds of injustice. He was a moral person. One author I was reading this week notes how this Pharisee's prayer resembles many of the thanksgiving prayers that we read about in the Psalms, thanksgiving Psalms, with one striking difference. In thanksgiving Psalms, the psalmist always grounds his thanksgiving in divine action and what God has done to save, redeem, and deliver his people. While this Pharisee grounds his thanksgiving in his action. I thank God for what I have done. 
And thus this Pharisee is presented as a quintessential example of self-righteousness. Now what exactly is self-righteousness then? Well, self-righteousness essentially is building one's self, one's selfhood, upon the foundation of our own personal righteousness. So building our selfhood, our conception of self and our identity upon the foundation of our own personal righteousness. And righteousness is not just quote-unquote good works, but it's anything that you take pride in, anything that you feel like you bring to the table, any strengths, any virtue, any abilities, any skill. It's building your life, your sense of identity, your sense of self upon that foundation, so much so that you can't conceive of yourself apart from these acts of righteousness, qualities of righteousness. And the two arms then of self-righteousness is both pride and despair. I mentioned this before. So the two arms of self-righteousness is both pride and despair. Now, of course, this Pharisee is exemplifying pride. He doesn't look vertically, he looks horizontally. As he looks horizontally, he grades himself on a curve. And when he's grading himself against a tax collector, he sets the curve and he looks pretty well. He's filled with prideful contempt. So that's one form of, of self-righteousness. But what would happen if this Pharisee uh, accepted a dinner invitation to a, a, a group of very well-respected and educated Pharisees, whereby he was the lowest-ranking Pharisee? Would he be filled with prideful contempt at that dinner party? Probably not. He probably would be filled with insecurity, despair, despondency. So that's the other form of self-righteousness. When you are comparing yourself to others and rather than setting the curve, you come in at the bottom and you're filled with despair. What unites both of them is this inward focus. We're very aware of ourselves, of our righteousness, of this foundation that holds our life together. And we're very, very aware about how we rate in comparison to others. So we're filled with pride, contempt, when we're at the height, we set the curve, and we want to draw attention to that righteousness. But when we come in at the bottom, we feel insecure, we fear people, we lack confidence, and we're hyper aware of what we're lacking. That's a self-righteous heart. And so if you feel insecure, if you fear people, if you're prideful, as this Pharisee is, or as C.S. Lewis says, the greatest form of pride is when you don't even acknowledge the person you're looking down upon because they're not even worth uttering their name, worth caring about their opinion. Or think with me of something that you take pride in. It might be an ability you have, your vocation, a skill, anything that you take pride in. Now imagine if everybody in your circle of influence had what you had and more of it, would you be okay with that? Or would you feel kind of depressed? We're self-righteous people. Well, this tax collector, in contrast, is a person of a very low status. The Pharisee, according to society standards, he had a lot to bring to the table. But this, this tax collector didn't. He had a, a low status. 
his public opinion would have been very low. He was kind of the scum and scoundrel of society. People thought of the tax collectors as those who were dishonest, greedy, um, <clears throat> taking people's money and getting rich off of it. No one liked the tax collectors. And as the Holy Spirit is pricking the conscience of this, this tax collector in our parable, he is recognizing his sinfulness. Not recognizing that he pales in comparison to the Pharisee, but recognizing a greater sinfulness. Because notice how the Pharisee's eyes were merely horizontal. He was grading himself on a curve. But the tax collector, his eyes were raised vertically, or at least he was trying to raise his eyes vertically, but he didn't quite get there. He can't even lift his eyes to heaven as he compares himself not to an imperfect standard, but to the perfect standard of God's moral revelation expressed in his character and in his law. He can't lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast as a form of repentance and humility and is utterly undone. Think of our call to worship in Isaiah 6. Isaiah didn't grade himself on a curve. He probably would have uh, come out pretty well if he did, especially at that time in Israel. But when he gets that vision of God's heavenly courtroom and a glimpse of God's holiness, he's undone. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a people of unclean lips. And he needs then the seraphim to come and cleanse him of his guilt and restore him. And we see the tax collector getting a similar glimpse. And maybe he gets this glimpse as he recognizes something of the true meaning of the temple, of God's holiness and purity and perfection. As a consequence then, that this, this tax collector who himself would have struggled with self-righteousness, we all struggle with self-righteousness, but by God's mercy, he was led to the gospel. Verse 14, we read that he went away justified, declared perfectly righteous in God's heavenly courtroom, and thus was delivered, freed from his own enslaving, self-righteous heart. So what was what, the decisive difference with this uh, with this tax collector, not only did he uh, compare himself vertically rather than horizontally, but he was then led to the gospel. And what the gospel tells us is that we have died and risen with Christ. Meaning that old self, which is built upon the foundation of our own personal righteousness, that's been crucified with Christ. That's been torn down. And now, we are led to a new foundation. And that foundation is the imputed and alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this new self, that's been created is, is founded upon that foundation. We have risen with Christ. This then frees us. It frees us from that pendulum of pride and despair. It frees us from having to be so self-focused because our personal righteousness is not the center of our universe anymore. It's not the foundation of our selfhood. Christ's righteousness is the foundation of our selfhood. Our justification is the foundation of our identity. And thus we have a level of stability that one who is self-righteous doesn't have. So whether we sin, whether we excel, it's really of secondary importance because we are rooted in something that does not change. The imputed, the alien righteousness of Christ, which is credited to our account. One author that I was reading this week uh, compared 
this reality to um, a body part that you don't think much about. So think of your big toe. How often do you think about your big toe throughout your days and your weeks? Probably never unless you stub your big toe really hard and it hurts. You only think about it when it hurts. And so too, the self-righteous heart has a hurting ego. It hurts. It's insecure. We're constantly aware of it. And even the prideful heart is wanting to draw attention to it because it's insecure. And the despairing heart is insecure about how they don't measure up. So it's like going through your day with a broken big toe and you can't focus on anything because you're constantly cognizant of your big toe. But what the gospel does is it, it heals the toe. It tears down that foundation of our own personal righteousness, frees us from being able, from having to focus on ourselves, and we can go through our day without even a thought about our big toe. It allows us to forget about ourselves so that for the first time we can actually think about the good of our neighbor and the glory of God. Because the self-righteous person still seeks to love and serve others, but they seek to love and serve others as a means to their own end, as a means to adding another, another merit into their own treasury of righteousness and good works. While the one who's been freed by the gospel genuinely seeks the good of their neighbor as a means of building them up and glorifying God. So the gospel is really the only antidote. God's mercy, this mercy which leads to this justification is the only antidote to self-righteousness. It's the only thing that can truly humble us as we are those who are sinners saved by grace and mercy alone. And as we consider, those of you who were here last week in our catechism service, we considered how we never graduate from the gospel. We constantly need to be hearing it. Why? Because we constantly continue to have a sinful nature which is prone to self-righteousness. And so if we want to fight that self-righteousness, we need to be constantly hearing that gospel, which is the only sure antidote to our self-righteous hearts. And thus, verse 14 is a very fitting summary to this parable. You'll see in verse 14, uh, Jesus concludes this parable by saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. <laughs> Paradoxical way of thinking about things. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that the one who humbles himself, that is to say the one who, who, who looks away from himself, looks away from what he brings to the table, looks away from his own merits and good works and righteousness and looks wholly to the imputed righteousness of Christ, that is the one who will be exalted in the age to come. While the one who exalts himself now, who wants his life to remain on his own island of his personal righteousness, that is the one who will be forcibly humbled in the age to come. So congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we reflect and continue to reflect upon Jesus' parable in this passage throughout our week, remember Remember God's mercy. Remember God's mercy that leads to this glorious justification by faith alone, which is the only means by which you will be delivered from your self-righteousness and freed up to actually love your neighbor and glorify your God.